important issues every time you turn on the radio. We bring you facts and analysis, not partisanship or hype, so you can form your own opinions on the news. You count on KPFK for informed, insightful reporting. Don't take coverage like this for granted. It's here for you, thanks to the generous financial support of our listeners. Support the programming you rely on right now by calling 818-985-5735 or contribute online at kpfk.org. You're listening to KPFK 90.7 FM, Los Angeles. KPFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. In today's headlines, Israel attacks breadline in Gaza, killing over 100 people and injuring 750. LA's homeless authority is being audited. New recall attempt of Governor Newsom. What does Prop 1 do? Voting uncommitted in swing state Michigan. EPA is sued for fluoride in drinking water. What Assange revealed about Honduras and the humanitarian crisis in Honduras fueled by the U.S. And news from outside the NATO info bubble. All this and more coming up. Good evening, I'm Rachel Brunke. Israeli troops fired on a large crowd of Palestinians waiting for aid in Gaza City today. At least 104 Palestinians waited for food in line, were killed, and 760 were wounded in the massacre. Aid groups say it has become nearly impossible to deliver humanitarian assistance in most of Gaza because of the hostility of the Israeli military and the breakdown of public order, with crowds of desperate and starving people overwhelming aid convoys. The UN says about 600,000 Palestinians face starvation. Around 200 million people have fled their homes. Kamel Abu Nalel went to the distribution point in the middle of the night because they heard there would be a delivery of food. He said Israeli troops and drones opened fire on the crowd, causing it to scatter, with some people hiding under cars. After the shooting stopped, they went back to the trucks and the soldiers opened fire again. He was shot in the leg and fell over, and then a truck ran over his leg as it sped off. Medics arriving at the scene found hundreds lying on the ground, according to Farah Afana, the head of the ambulance service at Kamal Adwan Hospital. He said there were not enough ambulances to collect all the dead and wounded. Raid Al-Nims, spokesman for the Palestinian Red Crescent Society, says the aid seekers wounded in the Israeli attack do not have the option to get proper treatment amid the collapse of the health care system. Quote, we immediately began transferring wounded and the dead to the hospitals, but the numbers were beyond our capacity, Al-Nims told Al Jazeera. The entire health sector in Gaza has collapsed. It has run out of fuel and materials. The spokesman said that Red Crescent crews, the eastern equivalent of the Red Cross, have repeatedly been intentionally targeted by the Israeli forces, killing 20 staff members. He added that the international community must realize that Palestinians in Gaza do not have the option to get treatment amid the lack of resources and that it must do all in its power to stop the war. Dr. Hussam Abu Safia, director of the Kamal Adwan Hospital, told Al Jazeera, quote, This is exactly the situation we had been warning about the hospital being out of service amid this massive influx of patients. Most of our patients are in critical condition, which requires urgent surgical intervention, but we have no working operating room. I stand helpless. We are simply administering first aid treatment only. Over 30,000 people have been killed and over 70,000 wounded, with over 15,000 feared dead under the rubble of houses in Israeli attacks on Gaza since October 7th. 
The revised death toll in Israel from the October 7 attacks stands at 1,139. KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. The books of the Los Angeles Homeless Service Authority, or LASA, will be audited by the county's top accountants and department heads as a result of a motion approved by the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors on Tuesday. The motion states, quote, as Los Angeles County continues to combat the humanitarian crisis that is homelessness, every entity that plays a role in ending the crisis must be challenged, evaluated, and supported to ensure optimal performance. The motion passed by a vote of 5-0 to zero without board discussion. LASA's role is to coordinate homeless services in Los Angeles County. It also organizes and conducts the point-in-time homeless count every year. The last annual count took place the nights of January 23rd through January 25th. Results of the count are not expected until late spring or early summer, Lassa reported. The board ordered a review of the count after doubts of its accuracy were raised. Results of the 2023 count found 75,518 homeless people in L.A. County. Lassa's 2022 and 2023 budget totaled $845.4 million. Of that, $726.2 million went to service providers. Of the service provider's budget, about $662 million was allocated for interim and permanent housing, according to Lassa documents. $40.3 million <clears throat> of the total budget went to the LASA administration. LASA is hiring a new chief financial officer, the county reported. In the last year, supervisors Lindsay Horoff and Catherine Barger appointed themselves to the LASA commission, the governing board of the agency. Horvath is chair of the commission. Under their supervision, Valesia Adams Kellum was appointed the agency's new CEO for a base salary of $430,000, almost double the salary of her predecessor. A 2019 report from then-City Controller Ron Galperin found that LASA was failing to meet the majority of its internal goals, even before COVID, with dismal outcomes such as placing only 4% of the unhoused in permanent housing and just 20% in temporary shelters annually. Galperin's audit prompted an investigation of the U.S. Department of Housing and her Urban Development. Since then, the situation has drastically deteriorated. Gavin Newsom has long been the subject of speculation regarding his presidential ambitions as concerns over President Joe Biden's age and electability have mounted. The governor participated in a debate with Republican Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida when the latter was a presidential candidate in late November. Now, Newsom is facing yet another recall effort. Citizen-led group Rescue California, sent a recall letter to the governor's office on Monday, explaining the reasons behind the second attempt after the first one failed. Quote, California needs a full-time governor who is fully focused on the serious problems the state and its citizens are facing, campaign director Ann Dunsmore said. This may be our last opportunity to rescue and restore our state while we highlight for the rest of the country the destruction Newsom has left in his wake. Gavin Newsom has abandoned the state to advance his presidential ambitions, leaving behind a $73 million billion budget deficit and a public safety, immigration, and education crisis. The recall organizers need to garner enough signatures to equal 12% of the turnout from the previous gubernatorial election. The effort has a May deadline to shore up about 1.6 million signatures to get the initiative on the ballot in November, according to the outlet. If the effort fails to do so in time, it can still continue gathering signatures for an election at a later date. 
Governor Gavin Newsom, who pledged 20 years ago to end homelessness in San Francisco when serving as the city's mayor, is currently touting a measure on the March 5 ballot that would authorize bonds to build facilities for treating the mentally ill by directing funds from a proven two-decade-old special mental health tax into new private contractor programs. He's also won legislative approval of euphemistically called care courts that can force California into being committed in order to receive treatment. Sacramento, like other large California cities, has a large and growing homeless population, and a new report from the city auditor is indicative of that aspect of the homeless crisis. Auditor Farishta Arari said the city, which faces a $66 million budget deficit, spent $57 million on homelessness during the 2022-2023 fiscal year, $34 million of it on maintaining only 1,300 beds at a temporary shelter. That's $2,000 plus per bed per month, which would equal the rent on a mid-range apartment. Three contracts for rudimentary shelters between the city and the Sacramento Housing and Development Agency amount to more than $10 million. Two 100-bed facilities cost the city almost $7 million, well over $100 per bed per day, while a 24-bed shelter for young people costs the city $373 per day for each bed. Sacramento is not alone in paying excessive sums for dorm-like short-term shelters. Meanwhile, Newsom has proposed to pare back homelessness spending because the state faces a multi-billion dollar budget deficit. On March 5th, Californians will vote on the controversial Proposition 1. The ballot measure, if passed, will allow the state to divert funds raised for non-coercive mental health care to housing and involuntary confinement in mental institutions. Many mental health advocates assume that while the measure is being marketed as the latest panacea to address homelessness, it is actually a taxpayer giveaway to private industry and will shrink proven programs. Last year, a comprehensive UCSF study found that homelessness is not caused by serious mental illness nor substance use disorders, but rather by high rents, low incomes, and sudden loss of incomes. Susie Shannon has worked with homeless and low-income communities since 2005 and currently serves as an L.A. City Health Commissioner representing City Council District 14. She's also executive director for the nonprofit Poverty Matters and explains the intricacies of Prop 1. I'm chair of the Poverty Council and founder of the Poverty Council. So I want to talk about Proposition 1. Obviously, we know the Democratic Party is supporting it. A lot of unions are supporting it. A lot of elected officials are supporting it. It's designed to be a way to address some of our homelessness issues. And then there are some drawbacks. So, so there's two main parts of Proposition 1. One is the Mental Health Services Act funding dollars, and the other is the bond money that will be raised, a little over $6 billion that will be raised, much of which will go to building facilities or providing housing. And by housing, we also mean interim housing, which is not permanent housing or people experiencing homelessness who also have mental health issues. This is not the first time the state has diverted money or tried to increase money for housing for people who are unhoused using mental health dollars. We've done that in LA and there's just been money diverted because homelessness in itself cannot become a mental health issue for people. They can suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. There are people who do have underlying mental health issues or underlying drug or alcohol problems, but that only represents about 33% of the population. So I want to be very clear that this is not a panacea for addressing homelessness. So 
the bond um, raises $6.38 billion. It's not a huge cost. It'll cost the state about $310 million over 30 years. And those are the interest payments for the bond. And what it does that's controversial are two things. One is the Mental Health Services Act money. Currently, 95% of that money goes to counties to be used for people who are suffering from mental health crises or for prevention of mental health issues. What this does is divert 5% of that money. So now 90% would go to the counties and 5% would be diverted back to the state of California to be used to expand mental health beds. And so currently the state is at a deficit of about 10,000 beds for people who are suffering from mental illness. This would not give us the 10,000, but it would give us more. What it does in actuality is it takes about $140 million away from county. As most people know, your county is like supposed to be a one-stop shop for people suffering from mental health issues to provide free clinics that folks can go to, whether it's more um, intensive mental health facilities or maybe the uh, more temporary ones. There are people who are worried that it will actually lead to fewer people being helped by the county and also maybe stop some folks from being helped by the county because of that 5% that's getting diverted to the state. The other part of this bond will provide $4.4 billion, which will go to the building of mental health facilities. And this would also include drug and alcohol addiction facilities. And only of that $4.4 billion, $1.5 billion would be able to go to local government. And the way it would go to local government is that they would apply for grants or loans from the state to help build these mental health facilities, and the rest would be built by the state. And then another $2 billion would go to what I see as temporary housing. And this would be hotel and motel conversions and conversions of other buildings utilizing what we call adaptive reuse. We have an existing building, existing infrastructure, and converting those. Like, why do we want to do that? Well, it's less costly and it's quicker. And so I very strongly support adaptive reuse and sort of expanding our housing, but it's important for people to know that this would likely be only interim housing, so it would not be permanent. So that means people would be part of a program, they would have to abide by the rules of that program, and it wouldn't be like their own space. It would likely be, you know, individual spaces where people would have a door they could lock behind them. It wouldn't necessarily be temporary shelter that we see, which is big warehouse. And so it would be hotels and motels and conversions of old buildings. It can be permanent sort of housing or it can be interim housing. And I think the issue is going to come down to the counties because they, even though they're willing to put money into this conversion of these properties for people who are unhoused with mental illness. So it's not everyone who's unhoused. It's just unhoused with mental illness or drug or alcohol addiction. The issue is that the counties would also have to pay for the maintenance of these buildings long term. So whether the counties can afford to in the long term maintain a lot of these hotels or motels or other buildings. I would say a con to this other than the 5% diversion is also the increased ability to move people into locked facilities involuntarily. Currently, we have a way to move someone who is a danger to themselves or others into a locked facility, which is the 5150 program. They can be put on hold for 72 hours. We put on on hold for 10 days after a a 72-hour evaluation or for even longer-term care, depending on how severe or extreme the mental illness is. What this does actually is it expands caseworkers, but at the same time, it provides for people you know, sort of like homeowners or people who live in a neighborhood to kind of call and say that, you know, anyone who is unhoused in their neighborhood suffering from a mental health issue to have that person picked up. And so this has been, for some homeless services organizations, this has been a huge problem. And so National Coalition for the Homeless and other organizations oppose this proposition simply because it's not a humanitarian approach to homelessness, right? Getting stuck, you know, I 
work with a lot of different clients who have varying degrees of issues. Most of them just are suffering from financial issues. And another way to address homelessness is to lower rent, as we know. But I've had various people at different states, I would say, of mental illness being put in a locked facility, in a long-term locked mental health facility, is very serious. And a lot of money gets diverted, kind of like the prison system as well. Like a lot of money gets diverted to building these facilities, and then they oftentimes get filled. For those people who actually can function outside of a locked mental health facility, if they are placed there, it is very difficult to get them out. The horror of having a loved one placed in one of those facilities when they didn't need to be, and then the struggle of getting them out. The issue for some people is that this has been very much politicized. There has been increasing homelessness in the state of California, we have over 181,000 people who are homeless. And so people are seeing, you know, an increase in homelessness in their neighborhoods. There's a lot of fear. And there are politicians, including our governor, who's a big champion of Prop 1, who want to say to their constituents, hey, I'm doing something about this. As someone pointed out to me, everyone who supports Prop 1 is politicians and organizations. And the people who don't support Prop 1 are typically people who will be impacted by it greatly. One of the issues, too, is that there is an organization that has been going state to state in our country, basically trying to create a situation where there's involuntary lockup of our unhoused community. And so I think that is also informing some of the opposition to this from some of the national homeless organizations. But you can help make them okay by supporting KPFK. It's time for our fun drive and the time when you give forward. This probably isn't your first time listening to Rebel Alliance News, and we're so glad you're here. Where else can you get this kind of uncensored news? We bring you real, uncensored, hard-hitting news, not the infotainment that other stations provide. And we can do this because we don't take money from large corporations like NPR does. We are truly independent. Instead, you are our sponsors. Your donation makes great programming possible and helps us to keep going. And uncensored information is needed now more than ever. So please go to the phone now and dial 818-985-5735 and donate to Rebel Alliance News. You can also go online to kpfk.org. And if you donate a little more, we offer you an amazing thank you gift, a best-off compilation of Pacifica's programming on a USB stick. Over six decades, KPFK and Pacifica have collected the voices of dissent, of conscience, the voices for human rights, voices against racism and sexism and war. This is an archive you can get nowhere else, and it can be yours for only $250. Please get it for yourself, for your children, for your community, your school. Share this knowledge, the speeches of Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Leonard Peltier, Occupy Wall Street, Black Lives Matter, and many others that mainstream media tries to silence. So please go to your phone now and call 818-985-5735 and say that you want to donate to Rebel Alliance News. If you want to keep us on the air, please donate now at 818-985-5735 or go online to kpfk.org so that you will still know tomorrow what's going on in this city, this country, and the world. Do it for your kids. Save and protect independent media. KPFK is the last holdout in an increasingly censored, streamlined media landscape. Call 818-985-5735 and donate now or go to kpfk.org. You can donate your car or motorcycle, your house, your castle. 
And if you're one of the lucky people who can afford a little more, please donate more, because many of us are hurting and can't donate, even if they wanted to. Please put KPFK in your will and create a beautiful legacy. Let's stand together and keep this amazing radio station going for all our sake. Thank you all so much. KPFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. More than 100,900 Michigan voters marked uncommitted on their ballots during the swing state's Democratic presidential primary on Tuesday. It's a signal to President Joe Biden that his continued support for Israelis, Israel's war on Gaza is angering key elements of his base and is potentially threatening his reelection chances. The vote for uncommitted garnered the support of over 13 percent of primary voters and far surpassed organizers' expectations. Brianna Joy Gray and Robbie Suave have the story. Republican and Democratic voters in Michigan took to the polling booth to cast their primary ballots yesterday. President Biden won his party's primary with a whopping 81% of the vote. However, the big story here is this. 13% of Democratic voters, or over 100,000 people, voted uncommitted. For reference, President Biden's 2020 victory in Michigan over Trump was by just 150,000 votes. Pro-Palestinian activists called on Democrats to vote uncommitted in protest of President Biden's blanket support of ongoing Israeli military operations in Gaza. In Dearborn, Michigan, where the state's Arab-American population is the highest, Biden outright lost the vote to uncommitted, with 56 percent of voters choosing not to support the president. Representative Rashida Tlaib led the push against Biden, telling press yesterday, quote, the war on Gaza is a deep moral issue and the lack of attention and empathy for this perspective from the administration is breaking apart the fragile coalition we built to elect Joe Biden in 2020. In a victory statement, President Biden thanked primary voters for exercising their voice. He completely failed to mention, however, the elephant in the room, the war in Gaza. Meanwhile, spokespeople for both the Israeli government and Hamas have distanced themselves from Biden's primary eve assertion that a ceasefire in the region could be reached as soon as this Monday. One IDF source told CNN they were surprised that Biden used the word Monday and the word ceasefire. And a Hamas spokesperson said of the deal, quote, there is nothing. Joining us now to weigh in on all of this and more is Michael LaRosa, former special assistant to President Biden and former press secretary to First Lady Jill Biden. How are you reacting to the results from Michigan? This uncommitted total seems somewhat significant to me as a protest against some of these policies, particularly the Middle Eastern approach. Do you think this is going to cause any consternation at the White House? I think it should because it's a reflection of a lot of dissatisfaction in an important swing state where young people and progressives and the Arab American community, the Muslim community were important to a very small marginal victory in 2020. There's a problem that's obvious and that's clear. More concerning to me is the level of enthusiasm that Republicans had last night, the about 40% increase over Democrats. That's concerning to me. We all know what the prediction that the map to victories are for Joe Biden, and they run through a state like Michigan in particular. Sure. Now, when you look at the voting margin, the goal of the uncommitted camp was to get 10,000 uncommitted votes last mm -hmm. night. They got 10 times that, 100,000, and even lost in this place in Dearborn, Michigan, where there's the highest concentration of Arab-American voters. Yeah. And many polls have pointed out that it's not just Arab-Americans. While this effect might be particularly acute in Michigan, mm -hmm. certainly there are multiple demographic groups, including every single religious demographic group, including Jewish Americans, support a ceasefire more than they disapprove of a ceasefire. Catholics mm -hmm. are at the top of the list after Muslims for supporting a ceasefire. We've had a huge number of black Americans express their frustration with Biden's approach in Gaza. So this is a, an effect that we might see repeated acutely in meaningful ways, given that the vote margins in some of these states are close. Mm -hmm. Joe Biden has not been able to break away from Donald Trump, who has been besting him in many a national poll and in these important state-by-state -state polls all mm -hmm. around the country. So I would expect there to be 
alarm bells going off in the White House. But when you watch the mainstream coverage, you saw something different. You saw it seemed a continuation of folks saying, we're making excuses, but look at all these other good things that Biden has done. We're hoping this is going to wane by the uh, election time and that we're not really going to get into the substance of what people are reacting to that's causing them to vote this way. And then you saw in Biden's statement, there was absolutely no mention of the core issue that has provoked this kind of response to him in Michigan. 67% of all likely voters support a ceasefire. Mm-hmm. 67%. Democratic sure. voters. That go- number goes up to 77%. Sure. Moreover, there seemed to be some indication because Joe Biden famously in that ice cream eating <laughs> moment a couple of days ago throughout the idea that he thought a ceasefire was pending, mm-hmm. that that was perhaps bait for the population in, in Michigan mm-hmm. to say, hey, to the extent that you're going to participate in this uncommitted campaign, know that there's a light on the horizon, something around the corner. And as we know now, as we read in the, the read just a few minutes ago, both Israel and Hamas are saying there's nothing to that claim, mm-hmm. seeming to suggest that Biden might have been going for a little bit of a bid mm-hmm. to get voters on his side. Yeah, I think despite it's pretty clear what he did there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah look, the, <laughs> We the, can all call this bait BB wants the war uh, to continue because as soon as it's over, his political fate could come to an end. That's right. Joe Biden wants this war to end because he has an election coming up as well. Does Not- he? Does he want the war to end? Because you speak to- about his his integrity well, everybody and his wants, grief, everybody, his compassion. Everybody wants the war to stop. In fact, aren't we violating the Lee law by not conditioning aid to Israel the way we condition aid to every other power we- on their not Using that Israel, conduct, Israel uh, has always defenses. been exempt. Israel has always been exempt from us because they are the only democracy in the Middle East. All right. Well, that's questionable. Um, Lebanon is a democracy. Let me, uh, <laughs> a majority of Americans that look at what's happening in Gaza and are saying very clearly, as mm-hmm. was expressed in the vote in Michigan, we don't want this to continue. This is yeah. not American policy that we support. Why it is that he is so willing to ignore what the majority of his base actually wants him to do in this instance, or might it have something to do with that fact that he tops the list of contributions um, in the Senate from when he was a senator? from APAC and other Israel-affiliated donors. Most of the Democratic Party is. Most of the Democratic Party is. Most of the Democratic Party is. Tops the list, though, Mike. Foreign policy and diplomacy is a lot more complicated than just saying we don't like violence. More Jewish Americans support a ceasefire than don't support a ceasefire. I get it. In your kind of framing, Mm -hmm. believes that it is in the best security interest of the United States of America to continue supporting Israel as it conducts what has been described as the ICJ as a plausible genocide and loses the election as a consequence. Can you honestly say that's on the fault of the Palestinian American and Arab Americans who declined to vote for him. Isn't that just a choice that Biden is making? Look, I believe that it's uh, a problem. Last night was a problem. I don't know if it's necessarily going to translate into 100,000 people supporting Donald Trump. I don't know if that's... They don't have to. They just have to stay home. uh, That's right. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised. A groundbreaking lawsuit against the EPA that seeks to ban the addition of fluoridation... chemicals to drinking water was begun last week before a federal court in San Francisco. The suit focuses on a growing body of science linking fluoride exposure to adverse neurodevelopment disorders in children and features studies funded by the National Institute of Health. Kim Iverson spoke to activist and journalist Derek Brose, who has been covering the story. There's been no coverage of it in the mainstream at all, and that hasn't changed right. in the last two weeks. There hasn't been a single peep from them, and uh, surprisingly, not a whole lot of uh, alternative media talking about it as well. So happy to get the word out. I did have a chance to interview a Fluoride Action Network who Michael Conant is representing. I got a chance to interview three of their expert witnesses, Dr. Bruce Lamphier, Dr. Philippe Granjing, and Dr. Howard Who. Some of the things they shared, uh, making it clear how dangerous fluoride is to pregnant mothers and how it is a neurotoxin, and so happy to share some of that information today. Yeah, the EPA was basically the government attorneys that representing the EPA were basically their job the entire nine days of total court time seemed to be to try to paint as much doubt in the judge's mind. Judge Edward Chen, he seems to be fairly neutral. Like he doesn't seem like he's on the government side. He's also not just giving it easy to Fluoride Action Network. He's really trying to keep up with it. And one other thing, just the reason this trial is so unique is because it's the first time, at least in recent memory, where a federal judge is being asked to judge science. And, you know, scientists typically don't want their work second guessed by 
you know, lawyers or courts. So the judge, obviously not a scientist, is having to keep up and learn this information as it's happening in real time. And so he was asking a lot of questions and the EPA's job seemed to be to just confuse him. Essentially what Michael Conant and his side are having to argue and are trying to prove is that under the Toxic Substance Control Act, TSCA, that fluoride is a neurotoxin and thus it should be banned. But if the EPA can succeed at confusing the judge or making him doubt the evidence, then they're trying to say, look, it's just not strong enough. You shouldn't make a ruling because, yeah, we now recognize that levels of two milligrams per liter in fluoridated water, there is some sort of harm. We can't quite distinguish when it begins. They would rather it be murky and cloudy than anything definitive, right? And so they're trying to tell the judge, yes, we recognize there's problems at higher levels, but down here at 0.7 milligrams per liter, which is what the CDC recommends, it's less certain and less clear. And so you really can't make a conclusion. I just don't even know why they're fighting this. Are they being sued for a lot of money and that's why they feel like they need to fight it? Or is this just a cease and desist putting fluoride in our water? There's no money involved at the moment. This is just the, the lawsuit was a result of the EPA rejecting the petition, which citizens can file petitions under TSCA. And so this is also historic because it's the first time a petition made it all the way to a federal court. But in terms of money, and kind of financial interest. One of the reasons I think that there's such a pushback here is you have to consider that we're coming up on 80 years now of water fluoridation in the United States. As the trial was going on, the UK announced that they're interested in developing a program potentially fluoridating that country. Canada is studying it right now. So it's still a policy that is being promoted. For example, the CDC has it on their top 10 uh, public health achievements of the 20th century, along with vaccines. It's still very much held in this high regard. And so you'd have to imagine the CDC, the FDA, the ADA, American Dental Association, and any other branch of government or organization who has spent the last 80 years promoting this could potentially be open to class action lawsuits as parents start to ask, did my child lose a few IQ points? Is my thyroid messed up because of my exposure to water fluoridation? Is my liver and kidney, are they suffering? Because there's so many other issues associated with fluoride. The trial specifically focused on the neurotoxic elements, which is obviously important, especially we're talking about prenatal and postnatal. So while the babies are just forming, it's, it's crucial. But there's so many other impacts of fluoride that they're trying to downplay the evidence because I believe they are worried there could be class action lawsuits if the judge finds in favor of the Floyd Action Network. I mean, it's one thing if they really didn't know and the science has just come out, right? But it's one. Th it's another thing if they are fully aware of this and they just said, yeah, it's all right. We're still doing it because cavities. I mean, that <laughs> to that point, during the last two weeks, it has come out. The evidence is available. We know, for example, Dr. Philippe Grangin from Denmark, respected scientist. It's his work on mercury that actually the EPA used to develop the mercury uh, toxicity standards. You also had Dr. Mm -hmm. Bruce Lanfear done work on lead. These, these guys are testifying in court about the information that they've known. And Dr. Philippe Grangin actually told the story of Kai Roham, who was a scientist back in the 1930s. He was the first person to discover skeletal fluorosis. And just discussing all the different health problems. Here we are nearly 100 years later and still trying to convince people that this isn't some conspiracy theory, that you're not a wacko. So there, there really is this evidence that we have now through this lawsuit and through more of the data that's come out that not only has the science been there and the data has been there, but something that Dr. Granjing told me because he worked at the WHO and he worked at Harvard and he told me some pretty powerful statements just this last week about how essentially he was ran out of Harvard because they didn't like that his data was starting to show that fluoride is a neurotoxin. He says, professor from Harvard University came to my office and asked me to sign a statement that my work on fluoride had nothing to do with fluoridation. He actually wrote this draft and since I didn't sign this immediately, he instead went to my dean and he had the dean sign a statement that he supported water fluoridation in accordance with the policy of CDC. After that, that leadership at Harvard told him that his research was unwanted. And he said, quote, because we couldn't agree on what I would consider my academic freedom, I left Harvard. And then in terms of the World Health Organization, he was invited to participate in helping them develop what they call an environmental assessment of fluoride and help them develop environmental health criteria. And he said, as he started to gather the data and put it together, he noticed that changes were being made to his draft report. He said, quote, they inserted changes in my draft indicating that fluoride could perhaps be toxic, but only at immense concentration. I protested and said that in accordance with the scientific documentation, it would be wrong to insert the word immense. And so the WHO published a document without my name because I'd asked to have my name stricken, but that was what the WHO felt was necessary in order to protect the interests of water fluoridation. 
It's not about fluoridation of the water itself. It's about the ability to medicate us in mass in this. Oh, way. absolutely. It's the only thing added to the water that is for medication. And right. shouldn't you have the right to medicate yourself how you choose? Shouldn't you have the right to use fluoride toothpaste if you want, or to add it to your water if you like? In the case of water fluoridation, of course, your tax dollars, especially in the United States, are literally going to pay to add this toxic substance to the water instead of the mining companies where, where a lot of this comes from, aluminum phosphate mining, instead of them having to dispose of it on their own, they're getting your city or your town to pay to add it to the water. So it's a financial waste. It's a, it's a health harm. It is a, a violation of your bodily autonomy. I think any argument you use is fine and it fails on all of them. The data that was presented during the last week or two, Dr. Howard Hu was talking about how as a mother progresses along her pregnancy, by the third trimester, she's getting just high, high amounts of fluoride as it increases throughout her pregnancy. And why is that? Well, mothers tend to drink more water, consume more as they're progressing, their baby's growing. So they need to get more nutrients in there. And in that third trimester, as the baby starts to form its own skeletal structure, it's going to be pulling typically calcium from the mother's bones, but fluoride stores in your bones and it displaces the iodine and your thyroid. It, it stores in your body. And so as the baby's pulling, it's what it needs, the nutrients and everything else to make its own body and calcium for the bones of its mother. It's going to receive that fluoride directly into the placenta through the blood brain barrier. And so, I mean, I've been focused on this for years, but honestly, the last two weeks being in the courtroom and hearing this data, it just is kind of reinvigorated in me how important it is to get this information to as many potential mothers or current mothers because the shower, it's in pesticides as well. There's a lot of different exposures. So kind of grapple with that and recognize that if you are pregnant or considering having a baby, the data is showing that will negatively impact your child's cognitive development. One of the government's witnesses is Dr. Stanley Barone, who is a senior science policy advisor with the Office of Chemical Safety and Pollution Prevention at the EPA. He was actually a witness for the plaintiffs, the Fluoride Action Network, and for the government. But there was this really key moment on the last day of actual testimony from the witnesses so Michael Condit is asking Dr. Barone about this. And specifically, he says, you testified earlier today that there may be oversaturation going on in the kidney at the 95th percentile level in the fluoridated areas. Do you feel comfortable as a risk assessor exposing pregnant women to a level of fluoride that is so high that the kidney is oversaturated? And at this point, Dr. Barone just froze on the stand. And in the end, Dr. Barone basically offered this winding, no, but this and that. And at the end, he said, my opinion isn't germane to the discussion. Look, if you're somebody who cares about the poor, cares about lower economic, socioeconomic status, that is who's going to be impacted by this the most. Because who can afford to buy filters for their showers and for their houses? Maybe you don't have a car and that's not convenient. Maybe you don't have the time, the money, et cetera. So if the people who are going to be impacted by this the most will always be the poor folks. So yeah. if you consider yourself an activist who cares about those things, that's something to think about. And the other thing is, I think the fight against water fluoridation could be framed as a an example of environmental racism, because again, it's going to impact those in the lower economic status who tend to be poor people. So whether you're left, right, whatever, I think there's so many arguments to trying to convince people on the local level and then hopefully here on the federal level to get it out of the water as soon as possible. Rebel Alliance News. I wanna watch the CIA. Married to the money, keep my maiden name. Hey. The trial of Juan Orlando Hernandez, former U.S.-backed coup president of Honduras, continued last week in New York Southern District Court. Alexander Ardon, a confessed drug trafficker, former mayor of El Paraiso Copan, is a key U.S. government witness in the trial. Last week, Ardon explained how he and the two post-coup presidents of Honduras, Juan Orlando Hernandez and Porfirio Lobo, bought votes, stacked the voting tables, and threatened voting table workers in El Paraiso to guarantee their victory in several elections. Ardon also described how controlling the outcomes of the elections was fundamental to the continued rise of the narco state and to Hernandez's victory as president. The human rights organization Honduras Solidarity Network stated in a recent report that they and over 170 electoral observers, observers had warned the U.S. and Canadian governments about the narco violence and drug interests they documented during the 2013 general elections and that, quote, they were ignored. 
Instead, the U.S. and Canada called the elections transparent and peaceful. Under Hillary Clinton, news of the U.S. State Department backing of the initial 2009 coup in Honduras that eventually brought Juan Orlando Hernandez to power was part of the WikiLeaks documents that were widely quoted at the time. WikiLeaks had exposed a July 2009 cable sent from the U.S. Embassy in Honduras to Washington titled, Open and Shut, the Case of the Honduran Coup, asserting that, quote, there is no doubt that the events of June 28th constituted an illegal and unconstitutional coup. The cable was sent to the Obama White House and to Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, among other officials. A month after this cable was sent, however, the Clinton State Department publicly stated that the situation was still unclear and needed further study by State Department lawyers. The 2009 coup in Honduras against democratically elected progressive President Manuel Zelaya led to 13 years of U.S.-funded military governments and repression in Honduras and to the beginning of refugee caravans coming to the U.S. southern border from Central America. The surge in refugees is costing U.S. taxpayers billions in border enforcement and is a key issue in the support for Republican U.S. presidential candidate Donald Trump. WikiLeaks founder and journalist Julian Assange, who revealed the story, remains in prison in the U.K. with possible extradition to the United States to a life in a U.S. maximum security prison. While the hearings for WikiLeaks journalist Julian Assange's extradition were barely reported by mainstream media last week, Chris Hedges reminds us of the many ways Assange challenged the lies of the powerful to empower us, the people, with the truth. The decision to seek Julian's extradition, contemplated by Barack Obama's administration, was pursued by Donald Trump's administration following WikiLeaks' publication of the documents known as Vault 7, which exposed the CIA's cyber warfare programs, including those designed to monitor and take control of cars, smart TVs, web browsers, and the operating systems of most smartphones. The Democratic Party leadership became as bloodthirsty as the Republicans following WikiLeaks' publishing of tens of thousands of emails belonging to the Democratic National Committee, DNC, and senior Democratic officials, including those of John Podesta, Hillary Clinton's campaign chairman, during the 2016 presidential election. The Podesta emails exposed that Clinton and other members of Obama's administration knew that Saudi Arabia and Qatar, which had both donated millions of dollars to the Clinton Foundation, were major funders of the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. They revealed transcripts of three private talks Clinton gave to Goldman Sachs, for which she was paid $675,000, a sum so large can only be considered a bribe. Clinton was seen in the emails telling the financial elites that she wanted open trade and open borders and believed Wall Street executives were best positioned to manage the economy, a statement that contradicted her campaign promises of financial reform. They exposed the Clinton campaign's self-described Pied Piper strategy, which used their press contacts to influence Republican primaries by elevating what they called more extreme candidates to ensure Trump or Ted Cruz won their party's nomination. They exposed Clinton's advanced knowledge of questions in a primary debate. The emails also exposed Clinton as one of the architects of the war and destruction of Libya, a war she believed would burnish her credentials as a presidential candidate. Journalists can argue that this information, like the war logs, should have remained secret. But if they do, they can't call themselves journalists. The Democratic leadership, which attempted to blame Russia for its election loss to Trump in what became known as Russiagate, charged that the Podesta emails and the DNC leaks were obtained by Russian government hackers, although an investigation headed by Robert Mueller, the former FBI director, did not develop sufficient admissible evidence that WikiLeaks knew of, or even was willfully blind to, any alleged hacking by the Russian state. Julian is persecuted because he provided the public with the most important information about U.S. government crimes and mendacity since the release of the Pentagon Papers. Like all great journalists, he was nonpartisan. His target was power.
he made public the killing of nearly 700 civilians who had approached too closely to U.S. convoys and checkpoints, including pregnant women, the blind and deaf, and at least 30 children. He made public the more than 15,000 unreported deaths of Iraqi civilians and the torture and abuse of some 800 men and boys aged between 14 to 89 at Guantanamo Bay Detention Camp. He showed us that Hillary Clinton in 2009 ordered U.S. diplomats to spy on U.N. Secretary General Ban Ki-moon and other U.N. representatives from China, France, Russia, and the U.K., spying that included obtaining DNA, iris scans, fingerprints, and personal passwords. He exposed that Obama, Hillary Clinton, and the CIA backed the June 2009 military coup in Honduras that overthrew the democratically elected president Manuel Zelaya, replacing him with a murderous and corrupt military regime. He revealed that the United States secretly launched missile, bomb, and drone attacks on Yemen, killing scores of civilians. No other contemporary journalist has come close to matching his revelations. Julian is the first. We are next. That was Julian Assange's final appeal, written by Chris Hedges, narrated by Eunice Wong. Don't push me, cause I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. <laughs> it's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. For 13 long years, the people of Syria have been the object of a hybrid U.S.-EU war fronted by a number of terrorist paramilitaries, some well-known like al-Qaeda and ISIS, others operating in relative obscurity. As we reported earlier this week, aid to the millions of suffering Syrians was the subject of Tuesday's U.N. Security Council meeting. Don DeBar has more. February 6 marked one year since the devastating earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. That was Deputy Permanent Representative to the United Nations from the U.S., Robert Wood, speaking at a U.N. Security Council meeting this past Tuesday. Three quarters of the death toll in Syria occurred in the non-regime controlled Northwest. There are 4.2 million people depend on humanitarian assistance. Given the sobering statistics shared by today's briefers and that humanitarian needs are at the highest level since the outbreak of the Syrian civil war, there is no reason why the regime and all parties in Syria should not guarantee humanitarian access for as long as needs persist. To hear Ambassador Wood tell it, there was an earthquake a year ago, there's tremendous need across Syria, and the Syrian government is playing politics with aid. In fact, something quite different is afoot. First of all, most of the need was created by a war that was begun by the U.S. and its allies through al-Qaeda and other proxies in 2011. For more on that, we go to Damascus, Syria, to speak with a journalist who's been covering it for the past 12 years. That's Vanessa Bealy. Vanessa, you heard what Ambassador Wood said to the Security Council this past Tuesday. You've been in Syria pretty much for the duration of the war that's now entering its 14th year being conducted by the U.S., and the EU through their proxies, al-Qaeda, and other groups, show us where there might be some vectors between Ambassador Wood's picture and the reality that you're looking at. Well, I mean, what is absolutely extraordinary, of course, is that uh, U.S. representatives are doubling down on the propaganda that has been used to criminalize Syria since 2011, in fact, since pre-2011, and talking about the need for humanitarian relief to be sent into northwest Syria only, which is governed and controlled by al-Qaeda, previously Nusra Front, currently Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, run by Abu Muhammad al-Jolani, known as an American asset, described as such by Ambassador Jeffrey, and Idlib, described by Brett McGurk as the largest al-Qaeda haven since 9-11. And yet we're supposed to effectively believe that the need for humanitarian relief to come into this area is a priority over humanitarian relief to the majority of Syrians living under the Syrian government protection in 85% of Syria that is not occupied by the US or their proxies. And what's extraordinary, if we go back to February 2023, when we had the earthquake here in Syria on February the 6th, um, we then had the situation where the Syrian government was actually trying to supply 
humanitarian relief to Idlib, to the civilians living there under al-Qaeda occupation. And Jelani was not only charging $10,000 per truck, $10,000 per truck to be allowed into Idlib, he effectively refused delivery of humanitarian aid because in his view, this would legitimize the legitimate Syrian government. Of course, also, we then have the situation where American sanctions illegal sanctions because they have no UN mandate, are crippling the Syrian economy, causing rampant poverty amongst 90% of the population. And humanitarian relief has effectively been cut off to that part of the population. Also, the fact that that is never mentioned by the United States or their representatives is that they are occupying one third of Syria illegally with 22 military bases, up to 3,000 military personnel. And they're stealing and trading both directly and by proxy with their Kurdish contras and with al-Qaeda in the northwest, 85% of Syrian oil and then a huge amount of Syrian agricultural resources from the northeast and from the northwest, therefore increasing the poverty, energy deprivation and the misery for, as I said, the large majority of the Syrian population. This attack on Syria that was characterized as an uprising, like the attack on Libya that ultimately destroyed it, was characterized as an uprising, attempted to follow the same model, which was using al-Qaeda and other jihadi groups as ground troops, and then to be supported by uh, from the air uh, and the sea by the U.S. Air Forces, in essence, NATO, uh, U.K., and France. But in essence, uh, al-Qaeda with, with the Western Air Force, that was snuck through the Security Council, in essence, in early 2011. And a little later, after people saw what the U.S. did with those resolutions, when they tried to do it in Syria, it was vetoed and, and subsequently a number of times by Russia and or China and or both. And Syria instead took control of the air with the help of the invitee, Russia. And so they've been stalemated. So the U.S. goes in directly and they occupy a quarter of the country. The MI6 and CIA clandestine operations against Syria began back as far back as 1946, enforcing regime changes when when a government was not compliant with U.S.-U.K. agendas and was pivoting towards the East, in particular early on towards the Soviet Union. And of course, the Muslim Brotherhood has been weaponized at least three or four times, including in 2011, to effectively lead, as you talked about, a sort of an insurgence against a government led by President Bashar al-Assad that, again, was not compliant with Western agendas. He basically refused the Qatari pipeline in favor of the Russian-Iranian partnership pipeline. He refused to abandon support for the Palestinian cause. He refused to, to not welcome Hezbollah factions inside Syria, and he refused to uh, drop the alliance with Iran and, of course, with with Russia and China and uh, the development of the Belt and Road Initiative, etc. In other words, the pivot east was not going to be allowed by the United States. The U.S. has created a 55 kilometer exclusion zone around its illegal military base at Al-Tanaf and Rukban camp is just to the south of Al-Tanaf. Both camps are training and recruitment grounds for terrorist groups, including ISIS. Many of the most recent ISIS attacks have been carried out emanating from Al-Tanaf. But Rukban itself is under the control of the United States and falls into this exclusion zone. So the sheer hypocrisy that he's claiming that Russia and Syria are not bringing humanitarian aid into Rukban is quite extraordinary because they're actually denied entry to Rukban and to the Syrian civilians that are being effectively held hostage there because of the U.S. exclusion zone. And now as the U.N. debate sending relief, the U.S. wants to channel it to resupply its own people, the al-Qaeda proxies and the people that are living under there rather than the government. This is a horrifying picture. Thanks for having me on. For KPFK, I'm Don DeBar. 
Iraq is moving forward to end the U.S.-led international coalition's mission in the country. Growing anti-U.S. sentiment across the nation has led the government to push the coalition to set a timetable for withdrawal of its troops from the Iraqi soil. Muslim Salim reports from Baghdad. As a result of a broad consensus in Iraq to end the presence of U.S.-led international coalition forces from the country, both the Iraqi nation and government made it crystal clear that these military forces are no longer needed. Iraqi National Security Advisor Qasem al-Araji stated that all political factions in the country have agreed on the need to end the presence of U.S.-led military coalition purportedly formed to fight Daesh terrorist group. Today we're witnessing the negotiation with the international coalition forces and honestly what makes us the Iraqi people exasperated is the insistence by the U.S. to keep its troops on our land to have an intervention in the military scene of Iraq and neighboring Syria. This Sunday will be a commemoration in San Pedro of the 100th anniversary of the murderous attack in 1924 by the Ku Klux Klan of the Union Hall of the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World. There will be a one-mile procession from the historic one IWW site to what the KKK built afterwards as their San Pedro headquarters, a building which still stands. The event begins promptly at 1 p.m. Sunday at the corner of 12th Street and Center. Come early to find street parking. And you've been listening again to KPFK's Rebel Alliance News. Please support our nightly news show with telling your friends and family and by donating to us. Please call 818-985-5735 and mention that you donate specifically to Rebel Alliance News. We thank our 